Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And today we are going to talk about Ebola because obviously um, this is a massive healthcare issue that's going on right now in West Africa and abroad. And there's also a lot going on in terms of the intersection of women and Ebola, a facet of it that might not be focused on as closely. So we're going to take some time to talk about what Ebola is, how it's spread, why it's spreading so fast, and also why women are at a particular risk for contracting Ebola. Right. So let's turn to the World Health Organization to figure out what Ebola is exactly. Basically, it is a severe and often fatal virus that's hard to distinguish in terms of its symptoms from things like malaria, typhoid fever, and meningitis. And in terms of its fatality rate, it is fatal 50% of the time. And once you are infected with the virus, the time from infection to onset of symptoms can range anywhere from 2 to 21 days. And you're probably, if you've been following these reports, probably familiar with that 21-day figure because that's the amount of time that a lot of authorities are saying that people coming back from West Africa should be quarantined. There's a big debate over that. Um, but people are not actually infectious until they develop symptoms. So it's not like you're carrying it around infecting people if you don't know you have it. But once you do develop symptoms, the virus is so contagious that it even can be detected on your skin. And the kinds of symptoms that we're talking about usually start with things like fever, muscle pain, sore throat. Uh, we hear a lot about how doctors and nurses are constantly having to take their temperatures every few hours because that's usually one of the first indications that you might have contracted Ebola. And then the symptoms can progress to include things like diarrhea, vomiting, impaired kidney or liver function. And then it can also progress uh, when it it starts reaching a fatal point where you begin bleeding internally uh, that lowers your blood pressure and eventually causes organ failure. Yeah, and we don't have anything super optimistic to report uh, as of press time in terms of treatment other than to say they're working on it. Healthcare teams uh, rehydrate patients. They provide immune therapies and blood products. Vaccines are being worked on, but it generally seems like the push for that did not come until this fall, actually, even though the outbreak started much earlier. So how does it spread among people? Because uh, there's obviously in the United States been a lot of panic about it being so contagious as, and, and we'll talk about this, as there have been Ebola patients um, on U.S. soil. And the bottom line is that it's not an airborne virus. It is contracted through direct contact, usually through broken skin or mucous membranes with blood secretions organs or other bodily fluids of infected people. And you can also contract it uh, through direct contact with surfaces and materials such as bedding and clothing that have been contaminated with those bodily fluids. And so you can imagine that also part of the problem is the burial and mourning rituals that are common in parts of West Africa where this outbreak has occurred in which people directly handle the body. And so you can imagine that if in the ways it is contagious through secretions and blood and other bodily fluids, that if those still exist on the person after death and you have people washing the body and burying the body improperly, that it could still infect people around them. 
Yeah, because in terms of how long it's infectious, pretty much as long as blood and bodily fluids remain, including things like semen and breast milk, it likely also contains the virus. Uh, for instance, men who have recovered from Ebola can still transmit the virus through their semen for up to seven weeks after recovery from illness. Which is crazy. That's crazy. So it's not just like, oh, you're bleeding and I'm going to get it. It's like it it can also be sexually transmitted, which makes sense, but it's also terrifying. Um, But so where did this come from? People originally got it from animals and fruit bats are thought to be the natural hosts of the Ebola virus. And so then humans come into contact with fluids like blood, organs or droppings of these animals and animals like chimpanzees, gorillas, monkeys, forest antelopes and porcupines found dead or injured in the rainforest. And in fact, the first Ebola outbreaks occurred in remote villages in Central Africa near tropical rainforests. In 1976, there were two simultaneous outbreaks, one in Sudan and one in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that one was near the Ebola River, hence the name. Now, when it comes to the current outbreak, um, the outbreak in West Africa has also involved not only rural areas, but major urban areas as well. And it's the largest and most complex Ebola outbreak since the virus was first discovered, as a lot of people are probably aware. And it, it it's concentrated largely in three main countries, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. But there have been cases in Mali, Spain, the U.S., obviously, and Nigeria and Senegal are also on watch. Right. And with this outbreak, we've seen more cases and deaths than all other Ebola outbreaks combined. More than 400 healthcare workers in West Africa have been infected and 233 had died as of October 8th. So obviously that number would need updating. So the question then is, why is it spreading so fast? We've had these previous outbreaks before. Why is this one so particularly aggressive? Um, The World Health Organization largely attributes it to things such as lack of education about transmission. I mean, I, I know from seeing news coverage in the United States, there's been so much confusion about how it is transmitted and the fact that it's not, in fact, airborne. Um, there's also been a reluctance to seek treatment. There has been, among some people in West Africa, a suspicion that it doesn't even exist, that it's perhaps a, a conspiracy. Um, but also, in the most severely affected countries, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, these three countries have just come out of long periods of conflict. And because of that, their health systems have already been weakened due to lack of human and infrastructural resources. So... They didn't even have the systems in place to jump on a case like this. And so now it's as if we're starting from behind. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that, like you said, Caroline, work on a vaccine didn't even start until the fall. Right. Um, well, and it's another thing, too, to look at the World Health World Health Organization's guidelines about infection control. These are very good guidelines, obviously. But when you 
hear them, it makes more sense why it's spreading so fast among people with limited resources. Because the things that they recommend include hand hygiene, respiratory hygiene, and use of personal protective equipment. Okay, that makes sense. You want to block splashes or contact with infected materials. But they also talk about things like safe injection practices, safe burial practices, applying extra infection control measures, wearing face protection like a face shield or medical mask and goggles, wearing clean, non-sterile long-sleeve gowns, and gloves for procedures and that's all well and good and those things would all be readily available in America and other countries but in some of these rural villages that are going through this health crisis all of these preventive measures are not necessarily available well and also in terms of the number of trained healthcare workers you have to treat this population um, they're clearly not enough obviously we're getting more uh, international medical workers on the ground building hospitals as fast as they can. But in terms of just looking at West Africa, you have one nurse for about every 10,000 people. And so in such a crisis as this, it's easy for those kinds of very strict protocols to sometimes fall by the wayside or something to slip up just because of so many people needing care. And the thing that has sparked a lot of Western focus and American focus on this outbreak is the fact that it has obviously been contracted on U.S. soil now, which says a lot about our priorities in terms of um, really only <laughs> caring about crises like this when they affect us in our backyards. Um, but we want to walk through just a brief timeline of how that happened and how that sort of led up to this uh, more American panic around Ebola and, and our response to that. Yeah, this is coming from U.S. News and World Report. We also took some details from a Reuters timeline. Um, but basically, health authorities think that a Guinean toddler who died in December 2013 is patient zero for the current outbreak because then that toddler's family contracted the disease and it spread from there. In March 2014, that's when we have Guinea's Ministry of Health announcing the Ebola outbreak with suspected cases in Sierra Leone and Liberia. And by July, the World Health Organization was reporting more than five 500 people dead. And then on July 26, this was really when uh, CNN, for instance, started having its almost 24-hour constant coverage of the Ebola outbreak because this is when Dr. Kent Brantley and fellow aid worker Nancy Wrightbull are diagnosed with Ebola in Liberia. They're then both flown to Atlanta to be treated at Emory Hospital. Um, that transport to Emory happens in early August. And so all of a sudden, the fact that these two workers are being transported here, oh, well, then it catches our attention. It, obviously, there was awareness that an Ebola outbreak was happening, but this was really when more of day-to-day focus was being placed on what this really means for us, too. And so by August 9th, the World Health Organization reported that 1,000 people were dead in Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Nigeria. And just 10 days later, they declare it the worst Ebola outbreak in history. Meanwhile, though... The organization Doctors Without Borders had been saying the same thing for a while. They had called the spread unprecedented back in April. Yeah, and then if we jump forward to September 15th, uh, this is when Thomas Eric Duncan, 
um, who had previously helped a pregnant Ebola victim get to the hospital in Liberia. He leaves Liberia a few days later for the U.S. and then becomes the first person to develop Ebola symptoms in the U.S. After he'd been sent home from a Dallas hospital with antibiotics, his health took a turn for the worst. He returns to the hospital where he's ultimately diagnosed with Ebola, and then he dies on October 8th, 2014. And this is also when the Ebola panic begins ramping up in the U.S. as well. These questions of uh, how did this happen? How are, you know, people are flying to the U.S.? What's going on? And also the fact that this is the first Ebola casualty on U.S. soil, because we should note that uh, Wright Bull and Brantley had already recovered and been released from Emory. Right. And so uh, Duncan's death creates this spiral. Like Kristen said, there was definitely a panic going on, but there were also actually real consequences for other people involved. Um, the nurses who cared for Duncan in the worst of his disease during his high risk period when he's vomiting and having diarrhea. Nina Pham and Amber Vincent both contract Ebola and both are treated. Um, Vincent is flown to Atlanta to go to Emory and Nina Pham is flown to a facility in Maryland. Both recover. They become the fifth and sixth American Ebola patients to recover. And so, of course, this leads to a lot of news media craziness, lots of speculation and conjecture over whether we're about to have, you know, a giant worldwide pandemic. Yeah, and all of this leads us up to late October um, after Dr. Craig Spencer has flown back home from Guinea to New York, um, as was repeated in every single uh, media story about him. He went bowling in Brooklyn and then developed Ebola symptoms where he was diagnosed. And so the panic was reaching a, a fever pitch here to the point that on October 24th, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie announced a mandatory 21-day quarantine in New York and New Jersey for anyone returning from West African countries. And by this point as well, um, at airports, the airports that were still open in West Africa and obviously um, the airports in the U.S., were already doing mandatory screening of anyone flying back from impacted areas. Um, and the, the thing about it is this is also when we start hearing, too, from a lot of American nurses who are very concerned about how they will be impacted. Um, this is when we start seeing more information about this gender angle of Ebola, not to pit uh, male doctors against female nurses, but it is notable, for instance, that a lot of the nurses that have been affected and a lot of the nurses speaking up on behalf of nurses saying we need more training, we need more resources, um, have been women as well, simply because nurses tend, it's an industry more doc- dominated by women. Um, but that's only, that's talking stateside. Uh, while all this is going on, while there are still fewer than, you know, a dozen Ebola cases in the U.S., as of early November, the World Health Organization estimated that there were 4,951 dead in West Africa from Ebola out of 13,567 documented cases. However, the head of Doctors Without Borders, which again, Caroline, you noted that they have sort of been on top of this even before the World Health Organization started paying closer attention. The head of the of Doctors Without Borders said that actually these numbers are, are probably being vastly underreported. For instance, in Sierra Leone, entire villages have been wiped out because it's so aggressive. And he says that the, the estimates could be as high as 20,000 
people dead due to this, which I think only goes to show to how much we're still learning about this. Right. And goes back to, again, our Western biases of only really tracking what's going on in our own country. Exactly. And we wanted to give you this primer on the Ebola virus to then lead up to why we're going to focus on women and why it is that women, especially in West Africa and also in you know American hospitals where a lot of the nurses are women, why they are at particular risk for contracting this disease and other uh, similar kinds of pandemics. And we'll talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Okay, so before the break, we presented you with a lot of information about the current Ebola outbreak and the crisis and where it came from. Um, and Kristen had started delving into the issue of the gender division in terms of who is being affected the most by Ebola. And we do know that women are being hit harder by this outbreak. Women account for 55 to 60 percent of the deceased in the current epidemic in Liberia, Guinea and Sierra Leone. And that's coming from UNICEF. And in July, for instance, health teams in Liberia said 75 percent of those who were infected or died from Ebola were women. And so that's established. We understand that these numbers are higher for women than for men. But why? What's going on? Well, it turns out that men are likelier to be hit first, largely due to um, what we were talking about earlier and how animals are the, the disease vectors. And as men are often the hunters, they might come into contact with it first through hunting infected animals. Um, but then women become disproportionately affected largely due to gender roles uh, at its most basic. Um, this is something that Liberia's Minister for Gender and Development, Julia Duncan Castle, has talked about. Um, she said, women are the caregivers. If a kid is sick, they say, go to your mom. The cross-border trade women go to Guinea and Sierra Leone for weekly markets, and they're also the caregivers. We mentioned earlier uh, the, the risk of contracting Ebola through burial practices and those burial practices and funeral rites are often led by women. Right. And women are also the traditional birth attendants, nurses and cleaners and laundry workers in hospitals as well. And it's interesting to note, too, that the gender divisions that exist in the home also extend into the hospital. Uh, Sufiatu Tuni is a spokesperson for the community response group in Sierra Leone and who is also a leader of the Social Mobilization Committee on Ebola, was also talking about this issue of how women are the primary caregivers at home. They take care of the sick. They cook for the sick and clean up after them. And she says that this role is extended to the medical field where women are most of the nurses and cleaners and they don't get the same support and protection as the doctors who are primarily men. Well, and it was also, uh, it might have been Tunis who was saying that if at home, for instance, if the woman gets sick, other women will come in to take care of her. It's not that the husband will assume the female duties. Um, And this is the same pattern from the original 1979 outbreak. In Sudan, for instance, 69% of those affected were women, according to a 2007 report by the World Health Organization. And this becomes an even bigger health crisis when pregnancy is added to the equation. And in fact, our major inspiration for 
wanting to delve more into this topic in this podcast is from a New Yorker article about um, the particular risk of being pregnant with Ebola. Right. It's it sounds absolutely horrific and it is scary enough to be pregnant, but to then experience Ebola, it adds so much terror to the experience. Um, so basically, when a woman is pregnant, uh, her body has a special immune response to the fetus and it knocks it down a few notches to help protect this growing thing inside of it. But that means that what's good for the fetus is not as good for the mother because she can't fight off infection as well. And so if a woman, if a pregnant woman contracts Ebola, that has a lot of terrible things that can go along with it. For instance, just one thing is that the Ebola infection can cause spontaneous abortion. And when a pregnant woman with Ebola goes into labor, they end up bleeding a lot and her sweat, her blood, and her amniotic fluid are all highly infectious, which is bad for her, it's bad for her baby, and it's bad for any healthcare workers trying to take care of her. Right. When you go to West Africa, pregnant women with Ebola are often turned away from the standard Ebola wards at hospitals, not only due to overcrowding, but because of the higher infection risk that she poses not only to other patients, but also to the healthcare workers who often have to weigh giving her the resources and medicine and, and treatment or giving it to someone who is not pregnant and likelier to survive. Because not only is a pregnant woman likelier to succumb to Ebola, but also likelier to almost take hospital workers with her. Yeah, but then there's the whole self-perpetuating idea that, you know, maybe if uh, a pregnant woman were provided with really, really good resources and medicine and medical care, that she could overcome it. But because people already have this belief that, oh, well, she's pregnant, she's going to get us all sick, they're less likely to treat her, which means, of course, pregnant women are more likely to suffer and die. And this story that we were reading said that, Overall, only time will tell as far as rates of pregnant women recovering versus not, because some healthcare workers overwhelmed by this current situation might not even record whether a patient is pregnant or not. Well, and we should also note, uh, and we should also note too that in the very limited studies that have been done on women, pregnant women with Ebola, the mortality rate for um, their fetuses, even if they deliver. Uh, are carry a child to term and deliver, the mortality rates are extremely high. There was only one, in one study, there was only one case of a woman delivering, um, a live baby and the baby then went on to die a few days later just because it, its immune system had already been so compromised. Um, and you also have to keep in mind too that in the context of West Africa, this is an area where Women might not be getting uh, good prenatal care to begin with, because like we said earlier, Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia have all been highly susceptible to Ebola spreading so aggressively because it didn't have a lot of strong healthcare infrastructure in place to begin with. And that extends to maternal health care in the region as well. Yeah. And so basically, um, any any advances that these countries and their health systems were making and being able to provide prenatal care, um, care for infants, 
it, it's all sort of taken a back seat to this Ebola outbreak because all of a sudden any resources that were being put toward pregnant women and families and infants, everything is being focused now on Ebola. Every every ward at every hospital almost is being turned into an Ebola ward. Um, and so, like we said, many healthy pregnant women aren't even able to get to the hospital if they need to deliver. And um, Dr. Emmanuel Darcourt, the senior health director at the International Rescue Committee, was really lamenting this situation and said, there are so many ways we as a global community have failed pregnant women who play such an important role in society. We all have a responsibility in a way for their safety, and we have failed in so many ways. And Ebola um, disproportionately affecting women has broader reaching effects than simply more women dying. Um, Sierra Leone First Lady Saya Nayama Koromo talked about how in rural areas where the majority of smallholder farmers are women, food production can be affected. And on top of that, the border restrictions that are being uh, put in place to try to slow the spread of Ebola, that is then affecting these cross-border traders, a majority of whom are women, making it difficult for them to provide for their families. And if we look at the idea of disease in general affecting women, um, Julie L. Gerberding, who's the former director of the CDC, read a paper called Women and Infectious Diseases, where she said that the social, economic, and psychological effects of disease are more severe for women. When their partners or fathers die, women often lose economic rights. She points to a Ugandan survey that found that one in four widows reported losing their property after their partner died. So that ties in with the whole issue of cross-border trade, of women having a major economic role in the family. And sadly... As Gerberding points out, this is this whole Ebola crisis and its effect on women is part of a much bigger picture of infectious diseases like this tending to hit women harder. Speaking to Foreign Policy magazine, uh, Johns Hopkins University professor Sabra Klein said that we take note of the gender division, but so few people actually do anything with that information because... Doing something would mean consciously evaluating what happens in an outbreak or any health crisis through a gender lens, which then would lead to the need for more focus on these systemic problems, uh, these systemic issues that lead up to perhaps gender disproportionate um, fatalities that might include things like women's unequal access to adequate health care or the finances, or the fact that they might not be first in line for treatment, or that they might be, or that men might be prioritized, I should say, over them for treatment. So, in short, it would, it would, it requires far more than just, say, finding a vaccine or something, you know, one simple step. Right. And Klein also points out what Kristen and I have mentioned on the podcast uh, a few times, which is that we have a history uh, in our in our history of medicine and research and medical research of focusing just on men and how a disease affects men and how a treatment affects men. And we really, as a as a global community, almost need to take into account a disease's biological components and the differences in how men and women respond to a disease. So you're basically saying both sex differences and gender differences have to be taken account, taken into account when you look at diseases. And so, you know, Kristen mentioned 
in quoting Klein and Foreign Policy magazine, the whole issue of maybe men being prioritized over women in terms of getting care. And this is kind of something that Columbia University epidemiology professor Wafa El-Sader also said to Foreign Policy. He said that looking at who dies in an outbreak, quote, shows you who has power and who doesn't. In a way, it holds a mirror to society and it shows societies how they treat each other. And this extends not only to lay women, but also to nurses who are primarily female worldwide, but also are often low on the totem pole. And like I said earlier, we've been hearing a lot from leaders of nurses unions and associations in the United States asking for more resources on the ground here. Um, nor is it just limited to Ebola in the same way as this gender issue applies to other pandemics as well. Um, there were some Canadian studies conducted on the 2003 SARS outbreak, and it found that, quote, a lack of power and influence of nurses was linked to infection control deficiencies. And similarly, a 2011 World Health Organization report uh, said, quote, research has shown that poor nurse physician relationships are common in hospital settings, pose a potential threat to patient safety, including the risk of infections and have a negative impact on nurse satisfaction and retention. And that quote right there from the report sounds like a summary of a lot of what we've been hearing in terms of um, nurses asking for help. Right now. Right. Because when you look back at Nina Pham and Amber Vinson, the nurses at the Dallas hospital where Duncan died, I mean, they did not receive proper training. They didn't really know what was going on, basically. I mean, Ebola was something brand new to Western hospitals, um, having someone suffer from those types of symptoms. They just weren't prepared for it. Um, but of course, you know, we, we've talked about how Ebola affects pregnant women and pregnant women also are so badly affected in, by infectious diseases in general. Um, for instance, in 2009, during the H1N1 influenza pandemic here in the U.S., 17% of infected pregnant women died whereas the mortality rate for the rest of the population was just 0.02%. And several other infectious diseases like malaria, hepatitis, tuberculosis, and loss of fever have been reported to be more severe in pregnant women. So clearly more attention is needed, and not only attention, but also action. Um, But one important thing to talk about, too, before we close, is the fact that, yes, women are being disproportionately affected, but women also, too have a very strong role in possibly uh, limiting this outbreak and in, in stopping um, this pandemic because, again, that actually relates back to gender roles and divisions. Um, there was an article about this in the Washington Post recently talking about how women in West Africa play a major role as the conduits of information in their communities Um and they are often being enlisted as leaders in public health campaigns to spread awareness about the disease in terms of, you know, if someone is sick in your home and caring for them and and laundering dirty linens and how they deal with the burial practice, all those kinds of things. It's the women who are being relied on as the gatekeepers of that crucial information. Right. So it's interesting to see how that reliance on traditional gender roles and roles in society maybe affects women more, leads to more women 
contracting the disease, but it can also provide a solution. And people haven't always grasped that. Again, this is coming from Foreign Policy magazine, where they talk about how in one previous Ebola outbreak, one anecdotal report said that men were dominating informational meetings on the disease, despite the fact that women were already known to be the primary caregivers. And during one of the avian flu outbreaks, government officials were dealing with men because they thought that, hey, these men have to be the owners of the farms, right? Despite the fact that women were the ones doing the majority of the work with animals in their backyard farms. Yeah, I think that uh, Julie Gerberding, who's the former director of the CDC, really summed it up uh, most effectively beyond Ebola. Um, she said you have to attack, quote, the root causes of these disparities, social, economic and educational inequalities that fuel the spread of diseases and perpetuate poverty throughout the world. And this kind of focus can be applied to so many things, even, you know, like she said, even beyond healthcare crises like this. Um, so hopefully some of these tragic but crucial lessons can be taken from this Ebola crisis. I mean, it is a big question mark, though, because everyone is in such understandably emergency mode. It's like these are we, we almost barely have time to even talk about it. Yeah. So at this point, only time will tell, mm-hmm. which is which is scary. Absolutely. But there are it, it is heartening to know that there are a lot of people, though, on the ground who are paying attention to this. And hopefully for listeners who aren't in West Africa, who might not have direct contact with um, people affected by the virus or people who are working to fight the virus, hopefully this can add more of a a deeper understanding to the news coverage that we do see about it. And if you do have a connection, though, to it, we really want to hear from you about this issue. Uh, MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a message here from Sarah about our episode on the Golden Girls. And she writes, I first watched Golden Girls a few years ago when I was doing part-time caretaking work for a woman with early onset Alzheimer's. I would go to her house to make breakfast and lunch in the morning, then come back in the evening to make dinner. We did crosswords together and went on walks, but as her illness progressed, she really just wanted to watch TV. The only thing that could really get her talking and interacting with people was the Golden Girls. I would sneakily get the remote and put the show on, and before too long, she would be telling me all about the various adventures she'd had as a teacher, as well as some of the raunchy stories about her first and second husbands. Over the course of my time with her, we watched pretty much every episode of the show. I think Blanche and Dorothy triggered some memories and helped her hold on for just a little longer. Plus, when she got to the point where she couldn't recall my name anymore, she started calling me Sophia because she felt like I was as sassy as Estelle Getty's character. Unfortunately, her decline was rapid and she had to be moved into a live-in facility before too long, but she watched Golden Girls all the way to the end. Beyond that, the girls totally changed how I planned my golden years. When I am a certain age, I fully intend to become a Blanche Sophia hybrid, wearing slinky robes and lingerie while dishing out some serious sass. I'm not far off from that lifestyle now, although usually I'm in stretchy pants dishing out sass. I just need to get my robe game up, and I'm set. 
Thank you for a brilliant episode on a wonderful show that has been a huge part of changing how my generation thinks about getting old. I adore the show and will probably re-listen to the episode with a big slice of cheesecake in front of me. So thank you, Sarah. Okay, I have a note here from Marianne about our Women of a Certain Age episode. Um, she says, I get the eye roll at the idea of biology making it so women want sex more when they reach a certain age. Would have thought that at your age as well. But as I have hit the over 40 mark, I have to say, biology is a thing, and yeah, if there wasn't birth control, I would definitely be more likely to have a baby now than I was 20 years ago. More importantly, though, I felt you missed one aspect of more mature women's sexuality and how it is treated. Young women are more insecure and less experienced, and therefore their sexuality is able to be controlled by men. Historically, fathers pass them to husbands who kept them pregnant and at home. Their sexuality is non-threatening and enticing. But as women mature, they become more comfortable in their own skin, they are less likely to become pregnant, and are therefore able to control their own sexuality. This is threatening. I believe that in order to tamp down the possibility of these more mature ladies getting out of hand, society has placed a strong value on youth and shamed older women for their sexual desires. On another note, I also wanted to write a thank you for your episode on black women's hair. Allowing that episode to go long was the right decision. You always do a great job of handling diversity issues with great sensitivity and fairness. So thank you, Marianne. We appreciate the letter. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with all of our sources, so you can follow along with us, you can head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 